You're listening to Contesting Wrestling, the podcast where I am the voice of most of society. When I say my name's Evan Burke, that's just me. That's not society. That's my name. But the way in which I represent society is through my dislike of wrestling. But I also am fascinated by it and have three close friends who have dedicated their lives in many ways to wrestling both as fans and as practitioners of the art form and they are here to help me on journey in which i will try to understand why anybody would carve out time in their day to watch people kind of pretend to fight and kind of for real fights uh in a ring in front of a bunch of people sometimes in a dirty basement with barbed wire everywhere. As we'll soon learn on today's episode. I, uh, I am Katie Vella, by the way, professional referee, uh, also streamer. Uh, follow me on Twitch at Over Here Counting. Plug, plug, plug. Um, I have been watching wrestling since 2003, and suddenly I wonder what I've done with my life. Uh, my name is Doc Diamondfire. I've been involved in wrestling for about 11 years now. Uh, a wrestler, commentator, uh, ring announcer, etc. Um, I think it's interesting your use of the word carved in there, Evan. We've, we've definitely watched some carvings lately, and this week is no exception. Rivulets. Getting a little tired of all the blood. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm Dr. Ben Abelson, professor of philosophy at Mercy College and a scholar of professional wrestling. I am very happy uh, for myself and Doc and Katie to be Virgil to Evans Dante, not Virgil, the wrestler, but um, Virgil as in <laughs> author of the Aeneid and character in Dante's Inferno who leads Dante on a tour of hell. And this is a particularly apt comparison for today's episode when we discuss hell in a cell and some other kinds of wrestling hell that we watched. Of which there are many. Indeed. So this is... This is ostensibly part of our Mick Foley series, uh, although we have the, we're, we're covering some matches where Foley is less of a presence. Yeah, we're only doing one Foley match today, so the centerpiece of today's episode is the much-heralded Hell in a Cell match between Mankind and The Undertaker at King of the Ring 1998. It's one of the most famous wrestling matches in history. The moment, uh, one of the key moments when Mankind gets thrown off of the cell is, I'd say, in the top two or three moments, most famous and talked about moments in wrestling history. So that's the main point of the episode is to talk about that match. But... Along with it, I thought it was also important to talk about the very first Hell in a Cell match from In Your House Bad Blood 1997 between Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker, which is an interesting match in and of itself, as well as the barbed wire, no ropes, barbed wire, ECW World Heavyweight title match between Sabu and Terry Funk from ECW Born to be Wired 1997 which I think also is an important match to talk about in the context of Hell in a Cell, because around the time of these two matches, uh, the Foley Hell in a Cell match and the Barbed Wire match, this is really where 
the violence of hardcore wrestling, at least on a major level, um, was at its height. It came to its peak in these two matches. I remember um, in 2001, so I had been watching a little bit of wrestling, but I had missed a lot, and I hadn't really been watching consistently since the end of 97. And sometime in 2001, I was at my friend Arthur's place in the West Village. Uh, He goes by Art now, a friend of mine since junior high school. We had gone to wrestling shows together. We both we went to Survivor Series 96 together and he had been watching pretty consistently when I wasn't. And I was like, hey, Arthur, um, are there you know, are there some matches that I should see that I haven't seen over these years? And he showed me three matches. Hell in a Cell between Mankind and The Undertaker from King of the Ring 98, Sabu and Terry Funk, the barbed wire match, and the second TLC match, which I think we'll talk about in a future episode. But three insane hardcore spectacles. And I was like, oh, this is what wrestling is now? Fuck, that's fucking crazy. Uh, And it probably should have turned me off to it from then on, but it did not. Uh, I feel like if there was ever an episode that was going to scar Evan mentally for the rest of his days, it would be this one. And judging by the visage I see in front of me now through our Zoom meeting, it appears that this traumatized Evan so hard that several parts of his beard just fell right off. In an indirect way, I guess it is sort of responsible for it because it was. I watched these matches and then I was like, man... I'm not going to be able to quit smoking weed right now, so I'm going to have to shave my beard so I can put a mask on and go out and meet my weed guy. Um, That's the actual story behind this. Um, (laughs) It's not that uh, you're anticipating having a barbed wire match and don't want to get your beard caught in the barbed wire, because that could happen. I do often, I mean, I will say one thing that I have to be careful of when I'm wearing a, a long beard is that if it gets too long, it sort of passes outside of my like sphere of bodily awareness. And then I'm really afraid I'm going to get it caught on something and it's going to like rip like my You're face just whipping off. women in the face in public with your beard. It just sets on fire and you can't tell for way. Yes. Too long. Yeah, I have. I have lit it on fire in the past. Doc speaks like someone that knows. Yes. This these matches. I mean, it's not like it was scarring per se. I kind of felt like I felt a lot of things. I I felt towards these matches. I guess some of the things that I have been feeling towards McFoley, which is that a like like a respect for the fact that it had to go here eventually. Somebody had to do this. Eventually, somebody had to take it this far. You've talked before about how there's sort of a throughout the history of professional wrestling, there's sort of this rise and fall of what people expect and like how how risky and violent everything gets. And then it inevitably reaches a point where it's too much and everybody has to kind of scale back. And this, you know, this time, the late 90s feels like very much, you know, it must have hit a particular roof and came back fully falling off the cage, stuff like that, you know, sets this new bar where you can't really ask your guys to do it on the regular. Wrestlers, however crazy wrestlers might be and ever and however self-destructive and everything, uh, most guys aren't going to want to do that. And you shouldn't really expect them to have to. 
but that's always what happens when a new bar gets set. A new bar gets set, and then people are super into it, and then the boss is like, well, you know, this is how we're making money now, and inevitably there's a pressure to do more and more crazy shit. No, that's, so I think some of the traditionalists will say, this ruined wrestling forever. Like, they could never really quite put the genie back in the bottle after this. And, I mean, you know, for new generations of fans, I think they were able to kind of scale things down and re-educate the audience to want something different. But for the moment, I think you're right. They hit this ceiling um, or fell off the, the literal ceiling. And um, and from that point on, I you know, and, and we're going to, in for the premium episode, we're going to show some attempts to sort of go further than this or like where hardcore has gone since then. And it's not pretty, <laughs> you know. Are we, we going to watch some combat zone wrestling? Uh, yeah, right, right. Before? Exactly, exactly. And, and where, you know, and to the point where it's really not enjoyable except for like a very small minority of fans. Now, at the time, specifically when the Foley thing happened, when he felt when he went off the cell, um, two things to say about that. And we'll get into the details a little bit more as we go on. But one thing is when it happened, um, it, it accomplished. Some people think that it ended the Monday Night War, that that moment ended the feud between WWF and WCW, because once that happened, there was nothing more to compete over. I mean, like WCW couldn't possibly do anything more shocking or more spectacular than that. And, and WWF sort of demonstrated this is the bar that we are willing to hit and no one is going to be able to top it. So forget about it. It's over. So th that's one thing. And on that note, when it happened, the story is that Vince McMahon went up to Foley and was like, that, thank you for doing that. Please don't ever do anything like that ever again. <laughs> I think the, the, the fault in the reasoning that this was like the end of the Monday Night War is that that's predicated on the fact that the company that's willing to do the craziest thing is going to win. If that was the case, then like ECW would have been a much bigger deal than it was. Um, this match was, you know, it, it was a confluence of several things. You know, Mankind was really hot months before this, but he wasn't that hot at the moment. You could say kind of the same thing about The Undertaker, although the reaction of the crowd when The Undertaker comes out is still just astronomical. Uh, but Foley, you know, wanted to wanted to really leave an impression. So he was like, well, let's just start the match on top of the cage. Like that was his idea. Um, and then it just kind of went from there. The thing that gets me about this match is how he does keep getting up and like as though he's fine when he's clearly not fine. He's not fine at all. And then more stuff happens and then he's less fine, but he's still just like get adrenaline or who knows. Um, it really reignited uh, his, the fire. For and, the and this for is him. indicative of Foley's career where, you know, he was afraid that he was becoming irrelevant. And so what does he have to do in order to become relevant again in order to get the crowd interested again he has to fucking almost kill himself he has to almost die and the fact that he was thinking that way is just you know it's wild like here's a guy on national television every week you know yeah. a, a extremely popular wrestler who's like oh no i need to i need to keep pushing this i need to keep pushing this envelope envelope or else no one's going to care about me anymore and that's really sad. <laughs> well, because I and I also I kept thinking about how 
A, it must be it must be strange as a wrestler to you know it's it, like you know if somebody asks you to do something that you are not comfortable doing where you are afraid of risking yourself and your body you know that's easy to understand being like no of course i'm not going to do that but it must be really strange when somebody like like the conversation mick foley has with the undertaker back there like i wonder if there was any pushback from the undertaker of like dude like i don't want to like the 50 50 chance you die doing this like i don't feel comfortable and foley's like no, no 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 i want you to do this this has to be this has to be the way and i'm picturing like that where somebody else is like oh no no i'm comfortable taking on this risk and all of this and the other person being like yeah but i still i'm gonna feel like i killed you if you die so i don't want to do it you look at undertaker on the top of the cell after he throws mankind off and he looks like he's worried that he might be dead he's probably (laughs) worried that he might be dead foley said that he asked taker later what he thought after he choke slammed him through the roof and he said taker just said to him i thought you were dead so, yeah, let's talk uh, and, and a little bit. The crowd, by the way, when they're stretching Foley out the first time, is chanting Undertaker. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, that's a big like, that difference. That was so badass that he did that. Right. That wouldn't happen today. Today, the whole focus would be on our fallen friend and warrior. Back then, it was still like, well, we're going to see the Undertaker and Mankind fight. And the Undertaker beat up Mankind. Yay! He really did a number on Because I guess us, us, you know, looking at it like analytical nerds, of course, we recognize that Foley is the one who did the really impressive shit. But yeah, within, I guess, within kayfabe, uh, that was the undertaker getting as over as possible where it's like look at how powerful i am i am the only wrestler i'm an undead wizard who will throw you 25 feet onto the ground like so uh let me just uh for the the sake of listeners who haven't seen the match um or heard people talk about it um this is what happens (laughs) so all right (laughs) For those who have been living under a rock for 25 years. So Foley comes to the ring. He immediately climbs on top of the cage, which apparently in his book, he said, was way harder than he expected. If you look at the cages these days, when they do like when these kinds of stunts like they do in this match are a lot like they're safer and they're more like stuntman. You'll see that there are holes in the cage for hands and feet to go in to climb up. This was just Foley pulling his 300 pounds up by his fingers. It's a lot easier when you're a little kid climbing on fences. Not so much when you're like when you're Mick yeah. Foley in 97. So they're all numb and mangled by the time he gets up there. And also, we need to describe the Hell in a Cell. So the Hell in a Cell is a steel cage that, unlike uh, most steel cages in wrestling, has a roof on top. And it extends out past the ring. So there's the uh, there's an outside the ring perimeter that you can run around in and, and fight in uh, in between the cage and the ring. Um, and so, you know, cage matches traditionally, they always like the joke is kind of the cage match is always booked to keep out outside interference so that the wrestlers just fight each other. But. Almost inevitably, someone gets in the cage or they get out. Pretty of much the cage. every time. Pretty yeah. much every time. Especially there the is Hell in a Cell matches. Especially the Hell in a Cell. So we get the first match, the first Hell in a Cell match between Shawn Michaels and Undertaker. And, you know, immediately, you know, the, so 
that was really clever where like Shawn Michaels, like he commonly does, takes out a cameraman by flipping on top of him and they have to open the cage to let the cameraman out. And while it's open, <laughs> Undertaker and Shawn spill to the really? outside. Really? That cameraman yeah, I mean, violence was really ridiculous. really beats the shit out of that cameraman. Did that cameraman go on to be a wrestler? I, I was trying to figure that out, too. Like, they don't show his face. He's probably a wrestler. So I'm wondering who it was. It was probably a local guy or, like, or like somebody's buddy. It was probably very likely a trained wrestler. Yeah, like, you could tell he was built, and he was, like, bumping for Sean's working punches and everything. It wasn't like a he bumped into him and he fell over. Like, Sean stopped beating him up, went into the ring, and then left the ring again to yeah, keep that beating was, him that up. Yeah, that was really the moment where I was like, <laughs> wow, Sean. Wow, Sean. My... Uh, this this yeah. match felt a lot like a um, – sometimes we watch a match – uh, like I thought this when we watched Hogan Warrior kind of and I, I kind of and I yeah. get the the feeling that this is sort of a platonic ideal of a certain kind of wrestling match. But you mean you mean Sean Taker? Yes. Or so, uh, Sean Taker. Uh, and, and also and just in that it's the kind of story that it tells like the same way, you know, there's there's X number of stories. All all books are telling, you know, one of 12 stories or whatever, something like that. Um you know, the way that there's a sort of like basic archetypical wrestling matches. And this seems like a real, uh, you know, I don't know, the authority punishing the upstart for brazenness, I suppose. (laughs) I can see that uh, to some degree, though. um, So, yeah, it's interesting that like Sean is kind of turning heel at this point. This is a month before the Montreal Screwjob. So we're leading into that. We're leading into Sean being the big heel in the company to fight Austin. Uh, But they also had to kind of settle this thing between Undertaker and Sean. Because at SummerSlam, Sean costs Undertaker the title uh, at being the referee in the match with Undertaker and Bret Hart. And he accidentally hits Undertaker with the chair. And then he counts three. And that's a whole story in and of itself. Um, And then the other thing that they were doing with this match was introducing Kane. So they were able to sort of um, settle the thing between Sean and Undertaker, get Sean over Undertaker so that he's the guy in line for the title and make him the big heel. So people are pissed that he wins this match over the Undertaker while also moving Undertaker on to his next program, which is going to be with Kane, who makes his day. That's got to be Kane. It's got to be Kane. Uh, They had been talking about Paul Bearer had been talking about Undertaker's brother Kane for weeks. And this was his debut. He shows up. He rips the door off the cage and tombstones the Undertaker and costs him the match. There are only like 11 or 12 stories. And this is the one where one of our protagonists thought to be dead brother in uh, what may have been an arson that you may or may not have committed that killed your parents at the funeral home comes back to life to beat you up you know it's a classic oh, that one that yeah. one which which one of shakespeare's plays was that oh that was um, the tempest two in summer uh, i think um yeah <laughs> king lear so, yes. oh paul, yeah paul bear played king lear <laughs> so the the undertaker has an established canonical biography 
Well, Kane actually has an established canonical novelization of his life that Ben attempted to read once and couldn't, couldn't because do. the prose was so awful. It was too bad. It <laughs> they was anna- just- and it just doesn't make any sense, does it? It's like trying to piece together the various... Look, all I'll say is we still need to do both an Undertaker yes. and a Kane episode. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, all. Kane, the, the story behind Kane is one of those soap opera stories where it changes from year to year as it goes on, but... Eventually there's a corpse yeah. fucking... Yes, eventually there is a uh, there is a corpse fucking. Um... I mean, the main retcon <laughs> was that, you know, Kane shows up wearing a mask because he apparently was burned horribly in this fire that turned out to be Undertaker's fault that killed their parents. Maybe. But then, of course, they wanted to take off the mask eventually. So he had to be not terribly burned. They had to be psychological scars. And it turns out he could talk also. Right, right. For a little while, they had him talking with one of those like voice boxes that people use who have had tracheotomies. And, and then they stopped. They just had they him They stopped talk. that. And <laughs> now, he's, now he's the mayor of Knox County, Tennessee. So that's... Yes, that's the actual mayor of Knox County, wow. Tennessee, Glenn Jacobs. How, how has he been doing a decent job as far as anyone knows? I, I I don't know. I mean, like he's he's like a libertarian that runs under the Republican Party. It's it's a popular philosophy around there. Um, the best I can say about him with those philosophies that I don't really agree with is that they asked him, well, do you ever want to run for president? And he just said, look, what works for Knox County won't necessarily work for the country. Just I'm fine right here. And I'm like, that's that's reasonable if the people around there like it, I think. Apparently him and Daniel Bryan have had some like really – Interesting political discussions. Oh, yeah. they're, they're, they're polar opposites, uh, but, you know, are really good friends and have worked together for a long time. So I'd love to hear uh, what those conversations were like. Oh, yeah. To sit in the backseat of that car for eight or nine hours between towns would probably be very interesting. Shawn Michaels, take, you know, he goes up to the, after they spill out of the cage. He runs up to the top. Undertaker follows him. Sean takes a bump off of like the middle of the cage, right? Like hanging yeah. off of the wall through the table. And I love the the call there from Jr. is he may just be broken in half. Yes. Then we get to the Mankind Undertaker <laughs> Hell in a Cell match where Mankind. So he climbs right up on the cage at the beginning of the match. Undertaker follows him up there. And then throws mankind off of the top through the table in this spectacular, insane uh, stunt. And JR's call is, by God is my witness, he's broken in half. <laughs> so. Uh, JR was at his finest in that whole Mankind Undertaker Hell in a Cell. That was like peak JR. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Definitely was. Like the his quotes from that match were the ones that people he said this, that people will run up to him on the street and just shout them at him. Like they're they're like his catchphrases, which must be a little disconcerting, you know, you're sixty year old, like droopy old JR and somebody runs up to you like his God is my witness, he's broken in half. It's like, yes. Yes, I'll I'll sign your autograph. Please leave me alone. <laughs> I I couldn't catch if it was Jr. or Lawler who said it, but it, um at one point one of the commentators during this match says, "Uh oh, this is scary." <laughs> I think it was. I think that was definitely okay. Lawler. Yeah. yeah, I think I remember hearing him say that and being like, "Fucking fucking great perspective, Lawler." That was poetic. So oh, man. Evan, to your earlier point, um. I don't think this match, the Sean Taker match is so much them punishing 
like the authority punishing Sean for his transgressions, but rather the crowd, mm. right? The like he was going to get his comeuppance for being a bastard to the Undertaker, the, the crowd and the Undertaker it, as the sort of representation of them. And this Sean Taker match is one of the more violent matches in yeah. WWF history to that point. And so Mankind and Taker felt like they needed to top it, right? Hell in the Cell 2 had to be bigger than Hell in a Cell 1. Uh, and they they certainly did escalate. Now, the Undertaker... He's he's like got to be one of the most over people ever, right? Just every time the Undertaker shows up, ever. the whole yes. audience is oh, just yeah. gonna be firmly behind him the whole time, right? That's yeah. Totally. Over the course of time, he's definitely on the on the list of top most popular wrestlers of all time. Oh, Undertaker himself is his own multi-part series. Yeah, yeah, and and on almost any match you'll see with him, like you just said, the crowd will lose their minds, and like, and they they they've not only because he's so great, but they've done such a great job of priming the crowd with the lights going out and the gong. Uh, people have described it as the Undertaker has the greatest entrance in wrestling, yes. and over the years he always tweaked it a little, you know, add some dry ice, so add a vulture or something. Occasionally, druids. raise your arms and have lightning hit, you know, in the arena. So he is technically a face, despite also being an evil wizard. Yeah, it depends. I mean, he's been healed before. Everyone still cheered him. <laughs> when he's a face, he's not an evil wizard. You know, he's one of these like Galactus type guys. You know, he's a force of nature. Right. He is death. Right, yeah. Right, right. he is and death. When death comes for you, it can be justified <laughs> and and the right time for you sure, to go sure. or it can be too soon and and awful and tragic, right? So everybody's got to face the undertaker. Yeah, most of the time he's a face though just because he's so fucking cool. Yeah, no, yeah. Like it's hard. He's so cool. It's hard to come up with someone that the crowd will cheer over him. When he debuted, he was a heel. And he wrestled really heavily into in like the zombie style. He wouldn't move a lot. He had like completely no sell everything, which was new to the WWF at the time. It was it was weird. And over the, his first two years of his career, he got way over as a heel. But people would he became a cult figure. People would start showing up to the arenas dressed as the Undertaker, you know. Um, and they were savvy enough to see which way the wind was blowing, so they just turned him face. And it's like, oh well, how can you have? a character like this be a baby face. But no, if the crowd starts cheering with him, he's already a baby face. You should just go with it, which is something they don't do enough today. Before we dive into really into the Mankind Undertaker match, assessment of the the HBK Undertaker, Evan, what did you think of the match? Oh, uh, I thought it was a good match. Uh, I got kind of bored after a while. I, I, I feel like I don't... Uh, I, I li yeah, I liked it at first. Um, and it didn't get bad or anything, but it did kind of lose me until he started beating up the cameraman. That got me back in a little bit. Uh, <laughs> that was that was so amusing. It was just so pointlessly mean, and Very he just it just kept going. Oh no, it's just, it is interesting to think about now. Like, I feel like I've learned enough about wrestling, where there are times when when I like the match at first, and then I get bored it's sort of there's a window of time where I'm like, okay, well, am I bored on purpose now? Like is the match actively yeah. boring me because something interesting is about to happen, which then is very satisfying. It's the ebb before the flow. And that's very yeah. satisfying when it comes through. But then if the match ends and I'm bored, it's even more upsetting. 
Now, it might also the 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 boring parts are also an invitation for you as a fan to start to contribute. Right. So like just throw money at them. Right. Right. When the face is taking heat, that's when you if you're there live, you got to start making noise and cheering to get the face back into the match. Right. Uh, so so that's also part of it is is often those times are that's, you know, that's time for you to take your solo bass player. You know? <laughs> Nobody cheers for that. No, yeah, J- J- Jim, Jim Ross used to say that, like the, the wrestlers uh, played the music and the commentators gave the lyrics and uh, the crowd uh, was definitely part of the music, you know. Um, because he has to react based on the crowd also. One of the problems with all this empty arena stuff is that the commentators have to be excited, and they're the only ones excited. Yeah. It's a lot easier to be excited when 20,000 people are excited with you. Um, yeah, totally. There, there's a couple of things I like about this match. Uh, I like how you know Undertaker completely dominates from the beginning, and it's the way that Sean is able to take advantage is kind of cool where um, Undertaker throws Sean into the cage and then, like, Sean just kind of bounces off of it. Yeah. And Taker doesn't expect him to bounce back so quickly. So Taker's already charging in and hits the cage. So Sean is able to take advantage through none of his own doing just because Undertaker threw him at the cage too hard. Uh, So I thought that was a cool little detail. I like how they went through, because this was the first Hell in a Cell match before every Hell in a Cell match had outside interference. I like how they went through all of the the act of getting, like, Commissioner Sergeant Slaughter coming out, instructing the ref, no, we have to open the cage door to get the cameraman out. I have the authority to do that. And then they carefully do all that. And then, of course, immediately the Undertaker and Sean blow out the door. But a second part to that that I thought was great is that when Kane finally comes out, Without any of that lock and key stuff, he just grabs the door and rips it off the cage, <laughs> which like it immediately established the Kane character as a supernatural force like the Undertaker. Weird that I think Kane has had Hell in a Cell matches since then yeah. and was not so capable of just ripping the door off its hinges. No, Kane is inconsistent, if nothing else. Oh, They've reinforced I, it I would imagine then. that Kane, uh, was, like The Undertaker, uh, is a character who they have to nerf occasionally because he'll get too, he'll yeah. get too powerful, and then they're like, uh-oh, nobody can convincingly beat him. But, like, Sean wins, you know, through no fault of his own the entire no. match, right? And he's completely destroyed from that table fall. Well, and it's to, only Kane's interference that allows him to win. To that point, when they run out of the cage, when Sean runs out of the cage the first time, the spot is he does the full windup, nails the full super kick, and Taker doesn't even wait. He immediately just sits up like, you know, fuck your super kick. I'm the Undertaker. And Sean runs. That was amazing. I love that. Was that was incredible. Which the makes whole it, sweet chin music windup. Tuned up it, the band all the way. 
hit the sweet chin music and the undertaker sat up immediately i loved it and that made it so much more impactful when kane hits the tombstone and that puts the undertaker out they the debut of kane is one of the most effective debuts they've ever had immediately put somebody as make them as powerful as you want them to be through very few that's gotta be kane right that's gotta be kane and paul bear looks great just standing behind him with his face and his hands yeah he's adds to every frame he's on screen I like how Kane, I guess, you know, he had been in the WWF doing other characters for a while. He was Isaac Yankum DDS. But when he picks him up for the tombstone, it takes him a while to figure out which camera he wants to face. Yeah. He, he, like shows, all, direction. he shows all four sides of the crowd and then does it at hard cam. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, though the hard cam's not on him at the moment that right. he does it. That's an, that's but, an editing problem. Right, Don't just right. gloss over Dr. Isaac Yankum, though. Tell, tell Evan about... Uh, about Kane's, uh, the guy's ride of bad gimmicks before he became Kane. I thought that was Kane's character is, is the... Yes, he was Isaac Yankum DDS. Wow. He was a demented dentist. All right, then. You know, I Yankum... When you were... Well, no, I, I got that. I just... When, <laughs> the, the, uh, the context, but he had really bad The context teeth. I got from the discussion you were having, I thought that that was a character that Paul Bearer had played... Uh, which which w- oh, which no. made a lot more no, sense no, no. actually, but um, yeah. Right. Yeah. No. 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 no Kane was they, Isaac Yankum when they first, hired w- the guy that played Kane. That was their first deal with yeah. him, and it when, like it didn't work. <laughs> when he was in the Southern Territories before that, he was Unabom, like the Unabomber. You know, the murderer. Oh, yeah. I just watched the um. There was a Netflix uh documentary about the Unabomber. And I was like, oh, I wonder if this is going to be a thing where I'm going to watch it and get, like, a whole new perspective on the Unabomber. And uh, not really. Yeah. It's kind of an asshole. <laughs> so what, once once they wound down the Isaac Yankum gimmick, you know, they still wanted to use, uh, you know, Glenn Jacobs because he was good, but that was a stupid gimmick. So the next thing that they did with him was when, uh, when Diesel and Razor Ramon left the WWF and went to WCW, uh, the – WWF sued Turner and WCW for the guys who played Razor and Diesel still doing Razor and Diesel mannerisms, even though they were using their real names. So they brought out two other guys named Diesel and Razor Ramon wearing the costumes, and Kane was the fake Diesel. And that got over about as well as you could expect also. Like a, Remember it, it's Diesel? like going to see a, a, tr- a real band and then a tribute band comes out. Well, yeah, and also if that real band was like a was a band that was not very like yeah. if you were going to go see Counting Crows and then it was like oh right. no it's going to be the Greater Midwest's third most popular Counting Crows tribute act. Long December, yes. long yeah. December, right? <laughs> uh, and the, the 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 fake Diesel and the fake Razor Ramon each failed for different reasons. Um, Kane could do all of all of Diesel's moves because there were only a few of them. But the whole appeal of Diesel is that Kevin Nash himself has this charisma coming off of him. Not that he was such a great wrestler. Uh, Razor Ramon was a great wrestler, and the guy they got to replace him really looked like Dollar Store Razor Ramon that just couldn't do it. Like literally Dollar Store Razor Ramon that you get off a shelf in the back of a dollar store, like or in like a bucket in like yeah. a crate. He had a big gut. Like, yeah. He was like several inches shorter than the actual Butter razor. Knife Sanchez. Yeah. 
Exactly. He looked Pretty a lot much. like Butter Knife Butter, Sanchez. Butter Knife Sanchez. As long as we're going completely uh, non sequitur here, Scott Hall said he came up with the Razor Ramon name because, like, he had already had Razor because the gimmick was a takeoff on Scarface. And he said that when he was doing, like, the interview at Titan Towers, he, with Vince trying to figure out the details, he went to the bathroom to pee and he happened to pee at a urinal next to Tito Santana. And he said to Tito Santana, look, Tito, I need like a Hispanic first name. And without thinking about it, Tito just looked up and went, Ramon. And he's like, I'm Razor Ramon. Yes, Razor Ramon. <laughs> so he credits Tito Santana with giving him that. I guess that makes it slightly less racist. I guess. <laughs> T- Tito was great. What, what was it at the interview with the what towers? Titan Towers, as in Titan Sports, the parent company of the WWF at the time. It's the nickname for their office building. I, I just did framing it as the interview with Titan Towers does make it yeah. sound a lot like it's the beat 'em up game that you have the live action beat 'em up <laughs> game you have to fight your way through to the top in order to get an interview with the WWE like you have to defeat Vince at the end That is how it and works. Then, yeah, that's though. what I figured, yeah. So they have announced that Money in the Bank this year that they're filming at their you know at their center the Money in the Bank match it isn't just going to be eight guys in a ring trying to get a briefcase. They're going to start at the ground floor of Titan Towers. And they are going to have to fight their way to the ring on the roof and get the briefcase from there. I'm not making this, this is up. Real? That's, this is this what is they're real. doing. They're going to film them. Yes. This is going to be the next big <laughs> WWE movie. Look, I are have going to have monster them. trucks there. I as think well? we even have Evan interested. <laughs> oh, I, my God. I also I love how. There's a precedent to the monster truck. Yes. There, throughout throughout the coronavirus crisis, I um, a lot of my like, you know, favorite podcasters and YouTubers have wound up doing episodes of like, what's in my house? <laughs> like, yeah. I'm running out of ideas. What can I use my space for? And to me, that's like the WWE version of that. I'm just like, all yeah. right, like, what can we got a building? That's what we can use. They're contractually use. obligated so. to deliver oh, a certain yeah, amount of programming <laughs> or else they'll lose all of the money that they're making from their biggest oh, revenue yeah. source. Oh, more so. power to them. I mean, actually, no, they're, they should not have more it. power. No, they should not like, be yeah. doing it. <laughs> I mean, honestly, not only should they not be doing it, but the government should, in fact, step in and stop that kind of contract from being in effect. But none of that is happening. They're just running because they're essential business in Florida. Well, that's One the thing employee that, has let's... made a complaint, but it has, I think, been dismissed. Yeah. Oh, they tried to they tried to act like not only did the employee not make they tried to say the whole thing was made up. Yeah, who knows? Also, that employee oh. is not only dead, but there can be no none of their records can be found. And uh, sometimes their loved ones will try to remember them, but just get like a weird headache and then a nosebleed. Oh. So, <laughs> it's weird. Their bones yeah. were not located. Yeah. Oh, that, on that. Right. So back to Helena. <laughs> Helena, what? Right, right. Oh, so The Undertaker yes. versus Shawn Michaels. You know, it's a great match. A couple of cool spots. I remember seeing Shawn go through that table and thinking he was dead. Um, and he does yeah. a pile driver on the steps. Oh, yeah. It looked real that good. Before at that point. And so everybody the- involved ended up looking better than they were before the match, which is a, a feat. Yeah. And I, I remember when Sean went off the, the side of the cell through the table, like they're on the top and I'm like, oh, shit, is someone going to fall off of the cell? And he kind of did. Kind of. And I remember thinking like one of these days 
Someone's <laughs> gonna go off the fucking top of that thing. And already in the Undertaker Sean match, like he's slamming Sean on the top of the cell, and the commentators are pointing out that the girders are bending. And that, mm-hmm. like, it really seems like the, the ceiling could collapse. So, you know, they they were aware of the possibility. Then when Mankind and Undertaker are up there, before Mankind even gets thrown off, their, like, feet are going through the mesh. And... Oh, that thing looks like it needed to be way oh, yeah. better. Um, what's, what's the word I'm reinforced. looking for here? Reinforced, yes. That thing looks like it was not properly reinforced at all. Is there, like, a special extra technique you should use if you're falling more than 20 feet (laughs) uh okay so mankind talks about this a lot in his book Uh, and foley said of the two big spots with him getting thrown off the cage and the one going through the roof of the cage he actually says the one going through the roof was worse and i'll get to that as far as going off he took what would essentially be a perfect flat back bump the most of his body hit at once without any single point hitting anything. The thing he was most worried about was hitting the pointy monitors on the table, which he did not. So as much as you can take a perfect bump falling that far through a table that, you know, sorry to break the illusion, but the table helps to break your fall more than anything else. Especially one that just collapses like that. Exactly. It helped. He took that bump as perfectly as you could take it. I always just figured that was because Vince was using non-union carpenters. <laughs> Maybe. I wouldn't be surprised. It depends on the state they're in, you know. Uh, seriously, when you're running big arenas like that, a major concern is, well, what's the union situation in your state? Because if you have the option as a big business of running in a state that the labor is going to cost sometimes literally three or four times more, you might steer clear of it. You know, Doc, I uh, was roommates with someone who actually worked like WrestleMania rigging one year, and he yeah. was union. He was like union. He, he was with a union that was hired on for it. They got the contract that year. Right. So in not- the indies, it's just the guys, right? Like the students. <laughs> yeah, it's the training everything together for free. One thing about what you were saying about him going through the announce table and like trying not to hit the monitors and all that. Yeah. These early table spots, like we saw the one with Bret Hart and Diesel, the one with Mankind and Shawn Michaels, these early announce table spots in WWF, you know, they wanted to make them look spontaneous and whatever. So they fall through with all of that junk on the table and it makes it look that much more dangerous. Nowadays, you know, they before they do a table spot, they clean the whole thing off. They right. take the plastic shell off. They take the monitors off. And it's like, in kayfabe, I guess you can be like, well, you know, they don't want to get fined for breaking a bunch of the equipment, right? It's not that they care about their opponent's welfare. They don't want to break a bunch of stuff. But then when they're in, like, a murderous rage and they do it, it's still a little bit yeah, silly. It's a little silly. Uh, but it's way safer that way, it is, especially now that instead of the big bulky monitors, they have tablets. Uh, right. So so Foley gets stretchered out. Yeah, he does the but, full stretcher job. The crowd is chanting the of, Undertaker. Yeah. Um, Terry Funk is there to help him, of all people. Right. right. Um, and so he gets up in the middle of the aisle and is like, screw this. I'm not being stretchered out. You know, he didn't limp back with everybody like fucking Roman Reigns in the right. Royal Rumble. <laughs> Uh, oh, throws God. himself off the stretcher as soon as he can move. 
gets back to the ring. And, you know, the crowd would have been like, like JR is and King are saying on commentary, like, you know, we apologize if the match ends early, but the crowd was, and you know, totally happy with what happened because it was already insane. Oh, when and Foley yeah, I got up. The crowd went nuts. They couldn't right. believe it. Did he, did he up. injure himself when that happened? A lot. Yeah, no, he's fucked up. He's totally fucked up. I don't know if anything's broken or if he's concussed already at this point. He's pretty good. I thought he was concussed pretty much immediately. I I guess that was a really stupid question on my part. (laughs) I love how the three of us are all going on about his various injuries immediately. He climbs back up on that goddamn fucking cell. He climbs the cage faster than he did at the beginning of the match because it was all adrenaline and he doesn't know what the hell is going on. And the Undertaker, seeing him, just starts beating him up again because what else are you going to do? Run? You know? So they fight for a little while and the Undertaker goes for the choke slam. Now, Mankind in his book says this is one of the only times he didn't jump really well and go up high for the choke slam. And he thinks that's good because when he went through the cage, he would have over-rotated and landed on his head. You see, he drags one of his feet on the top of the cage. They and didn't then, expect for the cage to break. I don't think so. Uh, that's but, what he said know, in the book, I think. But the cage sure broke, and he landed on those uh, on that unforgiving mat without anything to break his fall with a sickening crack. And then the chair that he had thrown onto the roof of the cage a while back He says his biggest regret in the match is just putting the chair down instead of getting rid of it because the chair fell with him and hit him in the face, which is the same as him just laying on the mat and then the chair falling off the roof and hitting him in the face. Him also falling doesn't (laughs) stop that. Smashed the fuck out of his face. You can see in the video one of his teeth coming out of his nose. Like, and it's just, yes. it's just the myriad of thoughts you have regarding how did it get exactly there? Oh, I like, didn't Like, what was the sequence of events there. where his tooth ended up in his nose? Oh, my God. Now, he turns to the camera once he comes to and tries, he says in the book, he smiles and people are like, oh, he's smiling through all of it. What he's trying to do is show everybody him poking his tongue through the hole in his lip, which you can't <laughs> see because of all of the beard and uh, blood. So this is the match, by the way, where a lot of people historically agree. This is where they went too far. Can we can we get on the same page? The insane thing is the match doesn't end with him going through the fucking top. Like they keep fighting for another like 10 minutes. Jim Ross is screaming, stop the damn match. (laughs) So they wrestle and Foley gets the Undertaker down and then he gets the sack of thumbtacks. And he's just I love him. I love him with the thumbtacks. Like he's like pulling them out, little little fistful by oh, fistful yeah. at first, just like throwing them happily into the air before just dumping them all out. It's really the well reaction, done. This the was reaction the... of the crowd when he takes the first handful and just sprinkles them on the ground is even in his concussed, addled state, knowing don't just throw the thumbtacks on the ground, show them the tacks first. And the crowd goes, oh, 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 and then he spreads them out and they go insane, which of course then ends really badly for him. This was the introduction of thumbtacks to American pro wrestling. Was there it? had not been thumbtacks previously in America. No, there had been thumbtacks in Japan. There had been yes, thumb. There had actually not been thumbtacks uh, in general in America before this. They were an unknown yeah, concept. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, yeah. Thumbtacks in general. 
Yeah. Thumbtack <laughs> technology was not widely available to Americans until Wasn't that 1980s. weird in high school when we finally had this way yeah. to like put things up on the bulletin board? Yeah, yeah I we mean, can yeah. thank McFoley for that. I'd just been using gum resin. The, the best part about the thumbtacks thing is the match goes on for a little while. Eventually, he gets tombstoned and it ends. And he's stretchered out. I, I, I love, um, at one point, uh, Terry Funk gets in there and gets beaten up by The Undertaker. Right, because they're trying to, they're trying to um, kill time for Foley to get back yeah. to his senses after going through the top of the cage. But the, when the match is over, he gets carted out and Foley reportedly doesn't remember anything after going through the top of the cell. He, he doesn't get carted out. They put him on a stretcher, and he, uh, again, he says in his book, he asked, I think Terry Funk was around, he was like, was I already on a stretcher today? To which they said, <laughs> yes. And he said, I don't want to be on a stretcher twice. So he gets up, and the crowd goes nuts. And with the help of the guys, he walks to the back. Reportedly, he asked somebody in the back if they used thumbtacks. Right, he like, was yes, covered Undertaker. in thumbtacks. Yeah, he said, he he said Undertaker's like, hey, Mick, are you okay? And he's like, Mark, did we use the thumbtacks? And Undertaker's like, yes, Mick. Yes, we did. <laughs> so, yeah, he was he was injured. He was fucked up. He had, like, deep bruises on his he back. He had to have been stuff. concussed. But this is oh, what yeah, he was he concerned was about, sure. was whether they actually used the thumbtacks. How many like multiple okay. lacerations? Ballpark, how many concussions can you take in in your life? I mean, I obviously know this is going to fluctuate from person to person, but like, did you, did you have do you have a number on that? Well, apparently, you're no. gonna have lasting you're gonna have lasting damage after three or four. Okay, so when Foley started getting into the research uh, with the concussions, you know, thanks to like you know, Christopher Nowinski and his foundation, he was learning about like indications that you've had like a concussion, including like small ones. Cause he had only thought, okay, if I, if I get real cloudy or whatever, that's probably a concussion. They're like, Oh yeah. Anytime you get hit in the head and you see a flash of light, like that's a small concussion. And Foley is like, Wait, every time you see a flash of light? Because I used to make sure in every one of my matches that I'd hit my head hard oh enough when we did that that I'd oh see no. them. Oh, no. And they were like, yeah. And he got so used to it, it didn't even really, like, phase him for a while. You know, um... But right, people say like, you know, there's an argument like how much did we know back then about concussions, how much we didn't. Obviously, we knew it was a bad idea to get hit in the head a lot. But it is true that only over the last 10 years or so did we really get the specifics on on a lot of it, the real specifics. And Foley didn't have that back then. It was like, oh, you had a concussion. That sucks. Shake it off, which was the accepted thing. You know, we, we've talked about um, the flares being genetic yeah. super beings, but I feel like Mick Foley's kids must also be invincible. No- Noelle had been training to be a wrestler, and I'm not sure if she still is, but last year she stopped for an extended period of time because she had concussion issues. <laughs> but unlike you know Mick, she stopped, and they were taking care of it. Now, if she wants to come back, that's up to her. Along with learning the details, we've actually expanded treatment for concussions greatly. Look into, you know, the case of Daniel Bryan about like stuff like that. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a I'm not qualified to give the finer details of, of all of that. But I do know that uh, in expanding the field, a lot of promising discoveries have been made to heal the human brain, which is an incredible organ. Um, and yeah. 
You're trained in how to avoid giving people concussions, but you're not trained in diagnosing them or talking about them. Yeah, the idea is don't get concussed. Yeah. And and I'm trained in how to not get them. I don't think in all of in all of the time I have wrestled that I've gotten any, which is kind of remarkable because physically I'm I'm a little awkward, uh, and I have hit my head several times. But like I've never seen like flashes. I've never been really hazy. I've never like. I don't think I've had any concussions, and I consider that to be very lucky. I don't have any that I know of. Right. You've exactly. Been in at least you've been in at least one hardcore match where they threw a ladder at you, right? I have. Uh, yes, yes, Madman Kareem locked eyes with me, and then he just chucked a ladder at me, and it was okay. It was okay. That's a good segue <laughs> okay. into... Well, but, but before we get into... Evan, what did you think of this legendary match? What did I... What did Because th- it's very famous. It's a very famous match. Did you enjoy it? And it's famously not like a five-star match, but yeah. man, is it notable. Um, what did I think of it? You, you know, the second he went off the top of the cage... It kind of felt like a, I don't know, like it didn't matter what I thought of the match or not. <laughs> like, like yeah, that's that's a lot of people's like, attitude. It was like just too big of a thing to to deal yeah. with. Where it's sort of like I, I I could only compare it to. I don't know, like if there's like us, if you're watching a movie and there's a scene halfway through the movie that's just so sh- shocking or so impressive or just like so um, momentous in comparison to the rest that like it's just sort of like almost messes up the rest of the movie for you. I can't think of any examples of that, but that's sort of what it felt like. I think that might be true for a lot of fans with wrestling in general. Like yeah. once they saw that happen... They were like, oh, well, none of this is going to work for me anymore. <laughs> like, that's that's because it. all of this. Like, it's the same kind of thing, like whether you're whether it's in wrestling or whether it's in uh, like, you know, quote unquote, more real violence like MMA or something like that. You know, we all know what the logical conclusion of all of this is. And the game is is right. just how do you like, get sort of as close to it as you can get without it being horrifying or without it being just un- untenable, you know what I mean? Like, because we yeah. all we we all know it's it's just there is something in the human psyche that just like we want it to be humans versus humans to the death, and or humans versus giant animals to the death, <laughs> and um, even though none yeah. of us would actively want that, humans versus tigers to yeah. the death, none of us would actively yeah. want that. But there is like some, you know desire and a lot of people would actively want that i'm sure this ecw audience would, would people, sure. at least some some of them would have been down with it i'm sure they would uh, I, I like to compare hardcore wrestling to like extreme uh, extreme death metal or extreme metal yeah where you know you can as as the bands got faster and louder and more incoherent you could tell like what the conclusion to all of that would be but you could also tell that whatever the conclusion of it is it's not going to be really good like musically you know the scum by napalm death is a very interesting record i never want to hear it again i think i listened to it once and it's pretty much the logical conclusion of like the fastest and screamiest metal you could ever get and it's not great you evan know? you and i oh, saw yeah. napalm death once I, man <laughs> i had never i was not really familiar with napalm death's music and 
I didn't know what to expect. I knew that they were like a legendary band and I didn't know what to expect. And the two bands that opened for them, like that was one of the best shows I had ever seen in my life up until that point. It, it was, was, it was ISIS uh, and I Hate God, right? Yes. The, Not yes, that the ISIS. Ba- the band that now in retrospect, it is... Oh, thank you for <laughs> that clarification. That now in retrospect, it is quite unfortunate that they were named ISIS. Uh, they're a great fucking band though. And um, <laughs> Green, yeah, and uh, and then I was like, oh, Napalm oh, Death are going to be really exciting, and um, yeah, it was like the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, it was I the res- worst show ever, and yeah. we were we were still at the age where like we had an ethical, we felt we had a responsibility to stay for the entire show. Yes, so we right. sat through their whole like hour and a half, two hour set, which might as yeah. well have been a three minute set in terms I- of the actual content. Yeah. Oh man! Oh, it's it's like listening to somebody punch you in the face for an hour. It's like I get it, but I don't want to get it. I do. I will. Uh, I do respect Napalm Death for being one of the only extreme metal bands with uh, hardcore leftist politics. Um, but yeah, I wish cool. I enjoyed their music on any level. That that just makes me sadder that I don't enjoy their music. So somewhat the. Um, Wrestling analog of Napalm Death, I would say, is this last match that we watched. And so for a little bit of a segue, it's got Terry Funk. There was one other thing I wanted to mention about Terry Funk in the Hell in a Cell match. He gets chokeslammed out of his shoes somehow. Undertaker (laughs) chokeslams him and he rolls out of the ring and you notice that he's barefoot and his sneakers are just sitting there in the ring for the remainder of the match. too big for him. the power of the Undertaker. I guess they were too big for him. So this match is Terry Funk and Sabu at ECW Born to be Wired. They did one of these no ropes barbed wire matches where the barbed wire is the ropes. And they just brought it as far as you could fucking bring it. And I mean, for me, this match has a kind of twisted elegance in its brutality to me. There's something beautiful to me about the end where they're so tangled up in the barbed wire together that all Sabu can do is kind of shift his weight on top of Terry Funk and Terry Funk kicks out of the first pin attempt. And then Sabu shifts his weight again on top to the point where neither of them can move without slashing major arteries and that's the end. It's one, two, three. Sabu wins. And then they literally have to wins be... Wins the ECW title, I might The have. world title, yes. The yeah, this ECW was a title match, title. yes. And then he doesn't look like much of a winner having to be literally cut out of the barbed wire extremely carefully. I... So, again, as not to cut any major arteries. Yeah, I believe the way Doc put it is Sabu technically right. won this match. <laughs> I, I compared them tangled in the barbed wire to like dogs that get stuck together, you know, when they're mating. While doing what, Doc? Uh, I'll say mating, I think is a fair way of putting banging. it. Banging? Yeah, banging with their banging organs. I've seen that happen. Terry Funk said that uh, when they were cutting him out of the barbed wire, like the real danger was that it got way too close to his eyes. But luckily it didn't actually damage his eyes out. Um, This was. Well, that's a horrible thought. You can hear Sabu like screaming like, ah, my eye, keep it away from my eye when they're cutting him out. Yeah. (laughs) My eyes, I'm not supposed to get barbed wire in it. (laughs) Exactly. A Lenny Leonard moment. The, The older I get, the more I really try to not be as judgmental as I've been in my life. And when I look at people, 
all and you know all of the first impressions that I get, all of the things that I feel right away. Like I really have to, I really strive to try to remember that that's not necessarily accurate, and that's based on a lot of uh, biases that we that we bring to other people, and it's important to try to work through that. And that said, everybody I see who's like a hardcore ECW guy, for the most part, I look at them and I'm like, this is a bad person in their everyday life. <laughs> this is a person who does bad th- things and the kinds of things bad people do in in their spare time. These are these are men who've stabbed Sabu's other men okay with guy. bottles. I think Sabu's <laughs> an okay guy. I don't know. Sabu has definitely stabbed other men with bottles. I yeah. think in ECW. Right, right, oh, yeah, right. Well, that, well, not, yeah, yeah. not out of malice. No, no, no. I, oh, oh, no. Yeah. I meant like in his off time. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's there's a famous match that we didn't watch that Sabu faced uh, faced Cactus Jack, where they get a bottle out of the audience, and Jack is like, "Oh, just just break it over my head," you know, because that's that's what happens. So Sabu swings the glass bottle at his head, and it goes thunk, and it doesn't break, and uh, which looks like it hurt a lot. To which Foley's, you know, what do you, what do you think Foley's response is? Oh, well, just hit me again. So he hit him several times in the head with a bottle until it finally broke. Because bottles don't break like that. Not like in the movies. That's sugar glass. That's It's gimmicked, brother, you know? Ugh. Oh, man. I had a tough time watching this match, too, just because of all the violence. I did, yeah. You think that it takes a, a especially awful kind of person to decide... To wrap his opponent in barbed wire. Actually, RVD did that. RVD and my thought that. was, and my thought was, oh yeah, RVD has a lot of expertise at rolling things up. I I don't think you know. So he, he kind of rolled him like I, a blunt. So so then taking your opponent who is rolled up in barbed wire, placing him on a table, wrapping yourself in barbed wire, and then leaping onto said opponent in the onto the through the table so that you are all inextricably bound in the barbed wire together. But, all right. Does that take especially twisted but, I guess let me clarify. I don't think that that uh, being in ECW and doing or I, I don't think that doing this kind of wrestling makes you an inherently bad person. Uh that that's 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 very glib. But I do think that probably the kinds of internal drives that lead somebody to wrap themselves in barbed wire and then hurl themselves onto another person that they have also wrapped in barbed wire and <laughs> and ram that person through a table lead to everyday habits and conduct in your interpersonal relationships in which you are probably functionally not a great person. Well, this is really this is where the real interest uh what, this is what's so interesting about Foley. Yeah, except McFoley, because McFoley does seem like by, an amazing human being. By all reports, yeah. yeah, he seems like he's an intelligent guy. He seems like a really nice guy, a great family yeah. man. His kids love him. His wife yeah, loves him. He seems you know? like a gentle, sweet dude. And yet he did the most hardcore of any of this shit, of, of any of them. So I don't know, man. I don't know exactly what the relationship is here. Terry Funk looks like a guy who gets drunk and, and fights people 
who don't want to be fighting yeah. him. I mean, yeah, I guess that's yeah. kind of the idea. I, I was saying when we were watching know. this match that, like, Terry Funk as the character looks like the old guy at the bar waiting for somebody to kill him in hand-to-hand combat <laughs> yes. because he fights everybody at the bar, yep. and he's disappointed that in his mid-50s, nobody has been able to do it yet. I don't see him fighting anybody who doesn't want to fight, though. No, but a lot of people like, I don't fight. see him as a... He's not an instigator. Yeah, as a malicious available. person at all. He's available yeah, yeah, for yeah. fighting. Exactly. Now, some of them, yeah. I mean, you know, Sandman, okay. Sandman's he another story. Be, fuck the Sandman. Uh, you know, and his, he might not be a great guy, but, you know, no, I, there, I, I, I haven't heard too much bad shit said about no, and, uh, most of the ECW and guys. And I, I, I am... Tommy Dreamer seems like uh, yeah, a sweetheart. Yeah, man. I mean, I guess I'm being, I guess I'm being real judgy. Okay, we just reset, listeners. We just reset the Zoom meeting. So even though no time passed for you, uh, like three minutes have passed for us. And in that time, I've reflected on. I, I, I am being, I, I am being very judgy yes. here. I'm sound, I'm sounding judgy. I, I guess, I guess there's two things happening. One is that I do feel like the character of a lot of ECW guys is like. Uh, kind of a, you know, I don't know, like... The general ethics of the ECW world was not something that I would subscribe to. That's a good No, answer. it was definitely a Coke part. <laughs> oh, Coke, meth, crack, like, yeah. Whatever were... drug you were into, somebody Whatever had. Whatever drugs New Jack had on him at the time, yes. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the f- Here's one of the funny things about it, is they had Joey Styles on commentary professing some kind of traditional values saying that it was terrible that the Sandman beats his wife or that it was terrible that this or that bad thing was happening, which was not necessarily the um, sentiment being expressed by the audience. It was often quite in contrast to the audience. I'd say that if there's anyone who we can make any kind of negative moral judgment about, it's by and large the ECW crowd. Yeah. Well, no, and I also I I think that I am, I think I'm also a, like I feel like I'm associating a lot of what I see in ECW with like I don't know creepy dudes I knew in high school who liked watching you know I don't know videos of people doing actual violence to each other on the internet like that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like I th- I, th- I think that aesthetic is sort of yeah. wrapping itself up because I have to you know. Especially if yeah. I'm interested in... I get where you can associate that. I get, I get where the association's coming from, the similarities. But, you know, in the, in the name of, of open-mindedness and intellectual consist- and philosophical consistency, I have to admit, if you are, if you're somebody who's doing this as a performance art, you know, I, I, I mean, I have to respect that. These guys are clearly incredibly dedicated to what they do. And, you know, if I don't understand it... Uh, maybe that's my problem. And within the context of wrestling, too, like, I mean, Sabu and Terry Funk had been feuding since the very beginning of Paul Heyman taking over ECW in 94. So it's the most hardcore promotion known for its violence. You have the two top guys in that promotion who have been feuding and escalating the level of violence for three years now. And this was sort of the logical conclusion of all of that. Um, now, and and from that standpoint, because and, and, and part of why I say that is I do think that there are some 
hardcore wrestling fans who are like the people you were describing, Evan, who do really enjoy seeing people in pain. And they're the ones who are, you know, tend to be into CZW and whatever else. And, and they've sort of splintered off from the mainstream wrestling fan in the last couple of decades. But then there is the wrestling fan who it does not specifically like that sort of thing, but enjoys seeing it to the extent that it makes sense as a logical escalation of a hateful, violent wrestling feud. And, you know, and I don't know if it's just a matter of degree, if it's like all of us have some of that sadism in us to some degree and some people more than others, um, or, or it's just, you know, it, it just is an outcrop of one's other aesthetic sensibilities in that case. A place where that made sense for me was like in the um, Kenny Omega hardcore match we watched. Where that was something where, because I guess it also sort of existed in this. I guess that match existed in sort of a cartoony world. In something like EC, ECW, yeah. there is something that's there is something that's almost voyeuristic about this match. Like it is almost like you know you're watching. It's as if you stumbled into uh, an illegal underground fight club that is like yeah that, it, that isn't wrestling it's like you know human dog fighting or something and i guess no, yeah they, but at the same time you have them you know like after sabu jumps through the the table wrapped in barbed wire onto terry funk who's also barbed and wrapped in by barbed wire it's hard to say fast yeah you you have this incredibly wrestling thing of the two of them very carefully dragging their barbed wire entwined bodies into the ring so they can finish the match without actually killing themselves or the other person, you know? So that tiny bit of restraint that pulling back from the absolute line and doing this thing that like for a second looks really contrived of them, like really carefully getting in the ring (laughs) to finish the match. There's something like just amazingly like, I don't know, ironic or weirdly um, uh, incoherent and, and uh, or weirdly contradictory that to me is, is beautiful in a way. You could say, that's a metaphor for a certain kind of love. Yeah. And I think that's how they feel about it. It is. That, you know? that can be the scary part is that, that it absolutely is the respect these hardcore guys have for each other. Because in wrestling in general, what you're doing is you're giving your body to your opponent and saying, here, do with this what you're going to do with it. Please give it back to me at the end of the day in one piece. And so the hardcore guys let their partner do to their bodies way more in way more extreme ways. And that image of Sabu and, and uh, Terry Funk in completely entwined in this barbed wire nest, you know, like, like dogs there. It's, you know, it's totally beautiful. They're like, they've taken it to this extreme, you know, to the ends of their lives. Almost. They've taken it as far as they possibly can. And now they are in inextricably bundled together in gore and oh. violence. Poetic. And you know, those two guys love each other, right? Oh, yeah. Like they have to Terry Funk could have stopped at yeah, any point. Yeah, there's no one. <laughs> uh, and he didn't. 
By now, he mostly did. I think the last time he did anything in wrestling was about two years ago. Uh, By the way, I got a comment on how perfect Sabu's pants are for this match. <laughs> yeah. He has these, like, parachute oh, yeah. Uh, like shiny genie pants or whatever. And they just get all caught and ripped up in various ways on the barbed wire. You see him like really trying to get his junk out of the way yeah. a couple of times so it doesn't dick get ripped up. Dick flopping around in his genie pants. Yeah. Yeah. Not the dick. Not the he dick. He really does look like a Street Fighter character. He, he does, really yes. Does. That's definitely the inspiration for it, or an inspiration for it. When he first trained, like, he didn't do any interviews until, like, the mid-2000s. When he finally did and talked about his training, you know, he trained under his uncle, who had wrestled for decades. And his, his uncle didn't train him to do hardcore at first at all. His uncle trained him how to do mat wrestling. He's like, we didn't hit the ropes for, like, two years. So he knew how to do all of that and then crafted a character around his base, which is why Sabu is Sabu, and a lot of people who are kind of like Sabu weren't um but yeah he had this incredible mystique like i you know yeah. no matter what i knew about wrestling i believed this guy was totally psychotic yeah. and because part of it had to be true right, right. Like, and just to do this kind of stuff with his body just incredible um you know this might have actually been the first ever ec actual ecw match i ever watched really i'm because sorry ecw wasn't really readily available um you know, we couldn't, you know, we didn't have the internet to watch it. I read about it in magazines. Oh, so when I, I finally got to watch this match, I was like, oh, fuck, it is really that hardcore. I, I started actually watching ECW on a weekly basis when I could around, I want to say, early 98. And I had met uh, DVS, our friend, the rapper, who we still need to get on this show sometime. Yes. In, in high school. And he told me, and I'd heard about ECW through the magazines, and he's like, okay, so what you have to do is you have to watch uh, uh, this UHF channel at, like, 2 in the morning on Saturdays. And I wasn't staying up that late at that point, so I'd set my VCR, and sure enough, most of the time, ECW was in that time slot. Occasionally, it was just an infomercial, because it was infomercial time, but that's when it was on in the New York market, on like 2 a.m. On a, on, a, on a public station in New York. It, was on, it had a slightly better time slot in Philly, I think. Occasionally, you get episodes of Candle Cove. I got to see some of the ECW uh, roster because they invaded Raw one week in 97. Yeah, that was interesting. Um that was really cool. Yeah, you had the Sandman out there smoking an entire cigarette, drinking a beer, smashing it over his head on fucking Monday Night Raw, which was still not yet like really fully in the Attitude Era. Oh, no, well that before that. Still very cartoony. Which, which was a point I wanted to make about the first Hell in a Cell match. That's an in-your-house pay-per-view. They still have the hokey in your house branding yeah. at that point. They hadn't fully got shed all that stuff, you know, when they're introducing the most brutal match. At Do the we time. have some final yeah. thoughts wrapping, wrapping this up? Uh, well, I, I got to say that I definitely liked this kind of wrestling a lot better when I was younger. I still absolutely love Mick Foley, but the really hardcore stuff like, more power to you if you like it. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it because that gets to be a touchy subject, but it's really not my thing. I like the occasional hardcore, but it's not really my thing. 
it can be done well. It doesn't always speak to me, but I do enjoy like an occasional like well done hardcore match. Man, I just feel like Sabu Funk though didn't qualify as well done. It's yeah, just kind of like, gross. I, I totally get all the poetic stuff you say about it, Ben, but that doesn't mean that I really enjoyed it. No, no, no. I did not really enjoy watching most of it, especially when they get like the close-ups of Sabu spiking him in the head yeah. with the piece of barbed wire. I don't need to see that. That's the kind of thing that like, no, I don't know. As much as I don't like quoting Jim Cornette, he's put it well once. He said, yeah, I'll watch the video of the woman getting hit by the train once, but I don't want to see it again once I've seen it. And I certainly don't want to see it every day as the basis of my entertainment. And if you do, maybe examine what's wrong with you. Then, like, yeah. that's a cohesive, no, that's a coherent sure. way of saying that. For sure. I'm glad that match happened. Right. I think it sort of had to happen, and I'm glad I, that I've seen it. But, yeah, I don't need to be seeing that as a... I, I don't need to be um, uh, consuming a diet of those kinds of images. Yeah, well put. That's for sure. All right. This hit, oh, boy. But Where are we going? For our fans who haven't had enough of us talking about... Uh. Oh, boy. Uh, uh, and yes. who want to subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash contesting wrestling. We have a premium episode exclusive to our $5 tier subscribers every single week. And this week we'll be getting into some uh, more contemporary hardcore to see where this particular genre of pro wrestling has been taken since the late since the late nineties, and this is definitely going to go too far. Oh yeah, I am <laughs> not looking forward to it. Well, this has been contesting wrestling. Follow us on Twitter at contesting w. We love you, butts, butts. Stay out of the ocean, yeah, everybody. And stay, even if you have an ocean stay in your home. home, stay out of that. Unless you know you're a fish. Stay home and out of the ocean, comma, but.